Merry Christmas, everybody. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, 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 ho. Happy Crimbo. Happy Crimbo. Um, we have a very special episode today. Um, by the way, it's Christmas, dude, in like literally a few days. It's, it's insane. I'm so I'm excited. I'm feeling so festive. I've had uh, 20 glasses of Baileys on ice. Delicious. I'm feeling slightly rotund, but that's what Christmas is all about. Mm. Hey, listen, I thought it would be really fun before Christmas is if we, it's, it, we release a slightly different bonus episode. Um, Candy Gillins and Choose Love um, combined together. And we, I did a live podcast talk mm. with someone called Taban Shresh. Taban um, is a refugee um, from Iraq, northern Iraq. Uh, and I sat down with her um, just before, actually, you know, a couple of weeks ago and chatted about her life, her, her charity, um, Lotus Flower, uh, just about Choose Love, all these different things. And I thought, do you know what? Just before Christmas, it would be a nice thing to put out there. What I think sometimes at Christmas time is to sort of really reflect on what other people are going through and, and all those kind of things. And rather than just us taking, maybe giving is a good thing. Do you not think that? I agree. I unfortunately wasn't able to choose love. Uh, I chose hate. So, <laughs> okay, so, yeah. good. Um, but no, I think, I think it's, a, it's a nice idea. And I'm also looking forward to tuning in and listening. Choose Love is an amazing charity. Um, it's a they, charity. These are the guys, that they did a store, right, that you could go into and you could... This is where any, we, we were in there. Kenny Kinnison did yeah, the store. Yeah, I, I did like, it in the store. This is oh, recorded is in okay. the store. And they are a uh, charity focusing around refugees. They're amazing. I've worked with them a few times and Kenny Kinnison collaborated on a packet of sweets with them. Here's our episode, a uh, very special bonus episode with Choose Love. Let's go. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to a live podcast. Um, it's a private parts podcast, which um, I've been doing for six years, five years, but this is a different one. Um, we are recording this in the Choose Love store, which is just off Carnaby Street. And um, I have the lovely Taban right next to me. Um, the reason why we're doing it here today is because Candy Kittens, uh, our beloved sweet brand, for not all of you here, but for some people, I hope. Um, we have collaborated with Choose Love. Um, and we're getting into the reasons why we've done that as we get further down the line. Um, so hopefully you enjoy this. Um, it's a short thing about Candy Kittens, if anyone doesn't know. Uh, my business partner, Ed Williams, and I started it. We say it's 10 years today, but actually we started it 12 years ago. But it's kind of 10 years as, as soon as we've been trading. And we've done it for 10 years. And uh, we started it with the idea to create a suite that has no nasties. So we wanted to make a suite that we could remove all the uh, gelatin, the animal gelatin in it. We wanted to make uh, a suite with no palm oil. We wanted to make a suite that was just not only delicious, amazing, but also good for the planet. And that's what we're doing at the moment. Um, anyway, enough of me. Tamana, are you ready for this? I am. Okay. Have you ever done a podcast before? I have, yes. Uh, okay, well, that's boring. Um, <laughs> is this your first live podcast? Yes, it is, actually. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Woohoo! Yay. All right. Um, Taban, can you please introduce yourself, um, who you are? Your story is simply incredible. Um, the stage is yours. Thank you. Do you want the full story? I want, yeah, the, okay. I want everything. You, okay. I want everything. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for having me, first of all. Um, I'm Taban Sharesh. I'm the founder of The Lotus Flower, and we support women and girls impacted by conflict and displacement. And Choose Love are one of our best donors and supporters. Um, in terms of, I guess, me, I, I'm a child genocide survivor from Saddam Hussein's era. Um, I was a child political prisoner at the age of four, and I escaped being buried alive with my family and ended up in the UK as a refugee at the age of six. Um, I've most probably seen things that not many children should see in their lifetime, and sadly, um, 
children are still seeing that now. And I can go into the full description of how I was taken. I think it puts it in context. Um, how I, don't, I think you should. I think also the, um, when you say a survivor of child genocide, what do you mean by that? So I'm Kurdish and in Iraq, northern Iraq, um, under Saddam Hussein's regime and the the Kurds were persecuted for being Kurdish so we were persecuted for our identity and my dad was a poet and he was also a Peshmerga so he was a freedom fighter and at that time that was a crime so we were on the most wanted list and the way that they would try and capture the men and kill the men was by trying to capture the families and try and capture as much information from them as possible. And that happened with us. So my mum left her job um, at that time because they had secret police in uh, the workplace. And every time she disappeared, she would obviously go and see my father who was in the mountains fighting. Um, they would question her and question her and interrogate her to try and get as much information out of her. And I think she just had enough and couldn't take it anymore. And so the day that she left, the day after, uh, two Iraqi soldiers turned up at our door at my grandmother's house. And I was in the garden. So I was four at this time and I was playing with my doll. And I just heard this loud knock on the garden gates. And my uncle ran out to open the gates. And as a child, I just ran to him for safety. I thought it would be family members, cousins, uncles, aunties. So I just instantly ran towards him and stood in front of him. And as he opened the gate, we saw that there was two Iraqi soldiers. Now, as a child, I didn't know what was going on, but my uncle knew instantly why they were there. And so he tried to deter them by saying, um, she's left him, meaning my mother's left my father because of this child and he tapped me on the head. And they looked down at me and went, okay, so this is the enemy's child as well. Um, and at this point, my other uncles had figured out what was going to happen. And so they hid my older brother in the basement. And I guess the basement, so say the window's there and that's the garden gates, it was right opposite the garden gate. So where my brother was hidden, he actually witnessed us being taken away. So they took my mother and they said, right, we'll take her as well, meaning me. So they took us both and we went to, uh, it was a normal prison where all criminals were. So I remember walking in as a child and all these, I guess, people were just staring at us. Um, they interrogated the adults for a few hours and they wouldn't give anything away. And my grandparents and my paternal grandparents, my dad's um, parents were captured as well. And so they would try and, capture as much information from them in in that interrogation they didn't give anything away and so we were taken back um to another prison which i would call like an ethnic prison where it was only kurds and you had the men separated from the women and on our way there i remember a young boy who was about 18 years old he'd kind of been um put onto the car with us but he was blindfolded and all he said was, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. And he was screaming this. And my grandfather was trying to really console him. Um, but we, we obviously knew that he was going to be killed. And the car stopped and he was taken away. We never saw him again. And so that was another form of execution for, for the young men. Um, 
So we were taken to the, I was taken to the women's quarters with my mother and grandmother. My mum was too shocked. So kind of putting it in context when I remember this, my mum was around 26, 27. So she would have been quite a young mum. Uh, and to experience this with your child, she was in complete shock. Uh, and so my grandmother had kind of taken over looking after me while we were in prison. We were there for about two, three weeks and some family names were called out and our family name was on that. Um, I didn't know at the time again, but when we were taken to the prison, outside the prisons, all the adults started screaming and wailing and crying and like begging the soldiers not to take them. And we had two diggers in front of the buses. Um, and at that time under Saddam Hussein's regime, um, genocide, was committed in this way where you would take masses of groups of people and kill them um, all together. And in our, the way that we were destined to be buried alive was they make you watch the diggers so you know that you're going for your death. So as soon as all the adults went on the buses, it just went into silence, silent whispers of prayers um, because they knew they were going to be going into their death. And... And what would happen at that time, the way that they would do it is they would dig the holes in front of you and then they would make everyone lie down, lie down like alive um, and then shovel soil over you slowly. So it's a very slow, torturous death. And Iraq <laughs> is one of the highest places where you've got the highest number of missing people. And it's because of all these mass graves. There are so many mass graves and so many people that have been killed in this way. So I was very lucky that we managed to escape. And the only way we managed to escape is when we were driving on the buses. At that time, you had Kurdish people working for Saddam Hussein, but they were actually working for Kurdish people to save them in situations like this. But then you also had Kurdish people who were working for Saddam Hussein. We had experience of both. So in this particular case, the drivers switched and there must have been some sort of deal. And once we started driving again, the doors opened and they said, we're Kurdish, we're not going to kill you, but you need to disappear and pretend as if you're dead because if you're caught, you'll be killed on the spot. You won't even be taken to prison. So we, uh, I kind of think of the story and I'm there going, how has the universe just kind of placed things along the way? Because we managed to find our way to a road and my granddad stopped a taxi and it happened to be one of his old students who said, what the hell are you doing in the middle of nowhere with your family? And he said, just sneak us back to the city. Don't ask any questions, because at that time you couldn't really tell anyone anything. And we'd gone back to my um, auntie's house who, and they were all wearing black and they were mourning because news had got to them that we'd been buried alive. They didn't realize that we'd been rescued. So it was almost like we walked into our own funeral. Um, and then after that, there was message for us to go in hiding. So my, my mother decided to take me only because in their eyes, they didn't know my brother existed. So she didn't want to put him at risk. And so we went to the south of Iraq and went into hiding for three months. And because I didn't speak Arabic, I only speak Kurdish. I would have given it away. So I wasn't allowed out of the house for three months. And then my mum put her foot down and said, I I, we need you need to get us out of this country we're gonna die and so that's when the journey started to try and get out of the country and it's, we spent 12 months fleeing but you had the Iran and Iraq war at that time so you had 
bombs and bullets and everything dropping in those rural areas. And the rural areas were the only places that we could go in hiding because we couldn't go to the cities because we would get caught for by Saddam Hussein. So we were trying to kind of stay alive from two conflicts. Um, and eventually we, we made it to Iran and my father was meant to meet us there and Saddam Hussein had hired a couple to poison a group of men and he was part of that. Um, and they laid out a feast and in my culture, if anyone comes to my house, you'll be force fed and like really food is big in our culture. And so nobody really suspected anything. Um, so they sat, sat down and ate with them, but they'd put poison in a yogurt drink that we have. And the men that gulped it down on the spot died on the spot. And that's when they knew, okay, we've been poisoned. So my dad had drunk enough to really paralyze him and make him critical. And so he was taken to Iran for with two other guys and then Amnesty International picked up on the story and then Amnesty International flew him to the UK to get medical treatment and he looked like that I don't know if anyone remembers or I'm not sure he might be too young um the Russian spy Litvienko who was poisoned um he was exactly like him and so we had to wait for him to survive before we could come here as refugees but I came here at the age of six as a refugee and I guess had a pretty safe, normal upbringing and um, witnessed the same atrocities happen again in 2014 with ISIS when ISIS had gone into Iraq and um, I went back, uh, I left my city job and basically witnessed another genocide, but this time with the Yazidi people. Um, so for me, genocide kind of has replayed itself and history has repeated itself. And it's sad to see that so much that we're witnessing around the world is still repeated. But I, I suppose the big thing is, is that you were four years old when this was happening. And, and you know, my memory as a four-year-old is not, it's not very, it's not strong. So how much of your memory is actually what you can um, recall or what family members or people have told you, do you think? Yeah. So for me, there are particular moments and particular memories that are very, very sharp and vivid. But I didn't know what the order of things would have been. So my mum and my family members have filled me in with those memories. But they're, for example, going out and going into the prison. What the prison looks like in my head is so clear. And I've still not been able to find it to this day. So the day I find my prison, and it might not be there... Um, but there are particular moments where, I mean, we've experienced things, for example, wounded soldiers, dying soldiers, like things that you shouldn't really be experiencing. They're very stuck in our memory. Um, but I guess the chronological order would have kind of been filled in. But, I, but also, I think, as you said before, it's something that someone, any human should not experience, especially a four-year-old. Right, and so then you you keep all of this trauma, and you have it in. So how then do you process that, and or is that a still an ongoing battle? The impact on, I guess we all know that you know the early childhood years are like the critical years. It's everything. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely everything for you to develop as a human, as an adult. Um, so it really, really does impact you. And for me. I was born into fight and flight. I've, my body does not know anything else apart from that. It's so weird that I feel strangely comfortable in places where 
there is war because that's all I've known. That's, you know, for somebody else to hear that, it's so strange to hear, but it's such a sad case that there are people in my region that were born into war and all they know is war. I've just come back today from there. We've got Iran dropping bombs. You've got Turkey dropping bombs and everyone is just completely used to it. And it's sad. It's really, really sad because actually not only is it the mental, um, the physical, the emotional impact that it has on you. Like for me, it manifested into an illness. I mean, I no longer have a large intestine because I've got an illness. So it, it has physically manifested into an illness. Um, emotionally, I've had to have the healing, the therapy. And that's so important. And it's, it's like the work that we do, um, the long-term support is so important because you don't see the impact instantly it's the long-term support it's the so, inner scarring that people don't notice right? yeah yeah exactly but it, so you 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 come to the UK and then you live your life in the UK um and when do you start to sort of realize that uh you are a refugee you are a survivor and that you you know you want to sort of help and give back and do all the things that you have done I spent a lot of my um, youth here growing up and just trying to figure out who I am in terms of when you're in a diaspora and you've got two cultures that you're living amongst, it becomes very confusing to try and figure out where you fit and you don't really fit anywhere. Um, so for me, my teenage years were very confusing, but then I never spoke about my past. Um, I think it was, I did a talk at the House of Lords um, in April 2014 as a genocide survivor. Now, I'd never spoken about my story ever. And I didn't really realize why I should or why I would. But when I was asked to do that talk, I realized the impact it had, not only of the people in the audience, but also other survivors in the audience. Had you spoken about it before, though? Never. So then how did they know you were a genocide survivor? So it was a, it was a regional government thing. They knew they like our story, they, our story amongst the community is known. My dad was poisoned and I was in, like, they know our story. And so for them, it was quite rare to find someone who was still living in the UK that could share a story. And so they asked me to share that story. And I just never shared it before because I didn't think, I mean, there were things that had happened previously that made me not want to talk about it. So for me to suddenly talk about it, I needed a purpose. And so there was a purpose in sharing it from a survivor's angle. And then later on, I realized the impact it had. And I thought, actually, it's, and this is a lovely story in that, because I was working in the city at the time. And the story had got back in the office and my CEO and knew, and I kind of got confused as to what I should be doing for work. <laughs> so <laughs> I um, went to my CEO and said, I asked for a meeting. It's such a strange thing. I've never had a request. Like I've never, you know, you have working relationships with CEOs. You might have a meeting here and there. Or you might never have a meeting. You might never see them. For me, I didn't really have a working relationship. But I had a career question. <laughs> So I asked for a meeting with him and I just said, I know this is really weird, but I just need your advice and it's career advice. You know my backstory. Um, I feel like I should be doing something different, but I can't figure out what it is. And he just said to Ban, you're too special for that corner desk. Can you please just go and fly? And I went, That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it and it really kicked things off. And 
I literally flew the next week, which is flying over ISIS and rescuing people and delivering aid. It, it feels like within yourself, you needed almost permission, which is a kind of weird thing to do. It's almost like um, you didn't know how to process it and you didn't, and you'd never spoken about it really. And then you kind of needed to ask someone to be able to do that. Did it feel that way? It did feel like that. And it was because I, I think I, I had so much respect for him. He kind of started, you know, he, he had a very interesting, I guess, political background as well. But he'd started that organization and, and got it to that point. So for me, I thought, oh, we've got a visionary here. He'll see something that I don't see. So let me just ask and see what happens. And actually, he's been one of our greatest supporters since then. And it's it's just amazing. I think the people, and this is why Choose Love for me is so special. They were one of the first organizations that saw from day one, like they, they just saw it from day one. I didn't have anything. We started out, the Lotus Flower started out as a burnt cabin with just me in my living room kind of planning things out, going, okay, this is what we're going to do. And we had one project. We had no money. I don't have any connections to anyone who's got wealth or anything like that. But Choose Love were the only ones that kind of saw it from day one and thought, actually, we know that this is going to happen and this is how you're going to do it. And now, today, we've managed to help 44,000 women and girls so if it, if it wasn't for that moment there, then this, what we do now, wouldn't have happened. But that's amazing as well. I, I, I always have this, Ed, my business partner will hate this, but I always say, uh, the best business plan is no business plan. That's the way that I look at things. And that's kind of how you start. You all started from passion. And, and that's the best way to start things. Not thinking, okay, where can I do this? Okay, this works. Yours is just passion. When you went to set, set up Lotus Flat, you know, um, and, you know, you now you said you've helped over 44,000 people uh, but it's also men as well and boys that you're helping. When did that start to happen? Because you, you said to me outside that you couldn't start help, only help women, you had to help everyone. Yeah, so for us, we, so we support women and girls impacted by conflict and displacement and our pillars are aligned to SDG goals, so education, livelihoods, peace building, human rights and health and safety. And a lot of our programs where we work with women and girls and we work so closely with them that we ask them what kind of things they live in the camps. They're the ones that live it day to day. So I don't feel like I should be going in to suggest something. We ask them, what would you like or what will help you and how are you going to find this supportive? And so a lot of the feedback that we were getting was, okay, well, if you want to decrease, for example, let's say gender-based violence, then you're going to have to speak to the men and boys because that's where we're experiencing it from. So we would go to the men and boys and say, actually, what can we do to work together? What, what do you need in terms of support? And we were so shocked that a lot of them came back with mental health support. Mm. And so we started a men's trauma project. Um, that was the first things that started, but also looking into the context and the region that you're working in. So we started a positive masculinity project in the region and actually we thought this is never going to work where we are. Um, but it did because we spoke kind of the same language that they were talking and we brought in religious leaders who they would listen to more. Um, so it's kind of, for me, I believe that it takes a whole community to help each other, not just women and girls. And especially in a community where you're facing so many different struggles on so many different levels and it's conservative, um, I think you really do need the support from the men and boys to help um, improve the lives of women and girls. And so that's how we kind of bring it in. And, and it seems to be working. 
No, it's amazing. And, and you, you described that Choose Love was a donor, but that's kind of hard to sort of understand. What do you mean that Choose Love is a donor? I would say that Choose Love are our family. I wouldn't even say donor. They're like the day one supporters. They're very different to other, let's say, donors in that they are, well, it start, the way that it started was from passion. It was a group of friends who were like, okay, what do we need to do to help the situation? And now it's grown into this amazing organization. And so for me, I think they go an extra mile and their hearts in the work and they take into consideration what we as local organizations and implementers actually face and what we need. So they're very agile and they're very um, supportive, uh, flexible, and they understand the real needs. Whereas if you go to some other organizations, it's so rigid that it makes local implementers work really hard. Like our speciality and our focus is helping people that we support. And how do we make the best way and implement the best projects to help support? And so for us, they give us that freedom to do that by being so supportive and flexible. If you had to describe Choose Love's mission, how would you describe that? I would say they're on a mission to really, really support wholeheartedly local organizations to be able to implement projects to help alleviate the problems that we've got around the world. And they could be various. It can be from um, immediate emergency support, or it could be uh, long-term uh, mental health livelihood support, or it could be, uh, you know, um, helping the planet. So from different ways, as long as they're kind of empowering the local organizations to do their jobs. And I suppose one of the big things is someone who's listening to this right now and everyone who's here, if they wanted to get involved with Choose Love, what is the best way to do that, would you think? You can go onto the Choose Love store. Um, you can buy products. So at the moment, you can come into the store physically as well. Uh, and the concept of this store is so brilliant. It's just right. absolutely genius. Uh, buying something that's, you know, that's not for yourself, but for others. Um, that concept, and we see it. So we, as local organizations on the ground, we see the work. For example, if you buy a mental health support, that really helps one of our psychologists to help the women and girls or the men and boys. Um, so it's very tangible and very direct. So I'd say come into the store, but also go online as well. And also the candy kittens, sweets. Delicious. Yeah. They're delicious. Um, you know, we, we live in this world at the moment, which I suppose we're doing, it's kind of a selfish world. Everyone is out for themselves um, and doing things, you know, that they want to do. How do you keep gaining that sort of desire to go out and help everyone and keep that going when everyone around you are doing not the nicest things? Um, well, this one's going to be a hard one, but I think when you've faced death on so many occasions, like I have, but if we, you know, put the genocide to one side last year I nearly died three times from my own health condition and actually the one thing that I thought about was if I died now would I die happy and my answer was yes because I'd lived a purpose and I'd helped other people and actually that is the only thing that I remembered of course yes bringing my son into the world and all the things that we kind of naturally love but 
that additional thing for me, the biggest thing was actually, if I died right now, I'd die happy because I feel like I've helped people and I've done and lived a purpose. And for me, I think for everyone, every, the world, the problems around the world are so big that we think that whatever we do, we can't have an impact. But actually, if I could do it as a single mum who was ill with zero money, um, then anyone can. And I think that's it. You just start small and believe that you can have a difference. And seeing, seeing change in other people's lives, for me, makes me very happy. So I'm sure it will make everyone else happy as well. I don't think that could have been a more perfect answer. Um, uh, it, it's true. It, I got told something about do the rocking chair technique. When you're 90 years old and sitting in your rocking chair, you're going to be happy with what you've done in your life. And if you haven't, then change it and make a difference. And I totally agree with that. Tuan, thank you so much. That was fantastic. Um, anyone who's listening, we can go and check out the Choose Love store. It's in Carnaby Street. Candy Kin has collaborated on the uh, our wild strawberry flavor. Uh, now, it's exclusively online at candykinners.co.uk or it's in the Choose Love store. It is delicious. It's amazing. Not only is it incredible, um, it's also giving back to the people who need it most. Uh, Tuman, thank you so much. A round of applause for you. You're an amazing person. Thank you so much. Thank you.